Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. We are taking a uh, five-week break from our series through Luke's Gospel to uh, look at uh, what we feel God is speaking to us about as a church right now. Uh, For those of you who've been around for a while, you'll know that one of the things we kind of really long for and have been praying for for a, for a long time now is what I might call revival or renewal, a longing for God to come and move in power and leave our community, our city and our nation forever changed. Uh, in some ways, you could argue that we are long overdue something uh, like this. I keep reminding God of that uh, in my prayers. Uh, at a minimum, at a minimum, it's 70 years ago this year since we saw anything approaching that. Uh, March uh, 1954, Uh, A young man by the name of Billy Graham arrived in London and started preaching every evening at the Haringey Arena. There's actually some pictures of this coming up uh, on the screen. Uh, Over um, the next two months, from March through to May, over two million people uh, came to hear him preach. The last night was moved to Wembley. Over 120,000 people attended that. And every single evening, thousands of people flocked to the front. Uh, saying, I want to follow Jesus. 70 years ago this year, uh, wouldn't it be amazing uh, if that happened again? 30 years before that, uh, there was a guy in London by the name of Douglas Brown. A picture of him coming up on the screen. Uh, He looks very rock and roll, I think you would agree. Uh, And he was a minister at a church called Balham Baptist Church. And he was invited to do a guest preach. And it was a pretty small church, nothing remarkable um, about it. Uh, around about 90 people in that church had been gathering for a while to pray for revival, but hadn't really seen much. And Douglas Brown preached a fairly ordinary sermon. But at the end of it, he called people to the front to follow Jesus. And the response was so dramatic. Uh, Douglas Brown ended up preaching 370 times over the next three months because so many people wanted to start following Jesus. Imagine if the reaction to this talk was I had to preach 370 times over the next three months. How would you feel? Uh, When I practiced the talk, you were hollering and chanting and screaming and rejoicing at, at this point. But the anecdotes from that season were really interesting. The end of some of the services were described as a battlefield, as people were on their faces getting right with God. The air was described as being thick with God's presence. It's like you can't see him or touch him, but somehow the air feels full of God. Now, I could go on and on telling you stories uh, about revivals, but perhaps uh, I could say just a couple of things. Firstly, an obvious point, don't we long for this again today? Uh, Doesn't it feel like our nation and our city and our community needs it? Do you ever watch the news and think, oh God, would you come and move in power? Second thing to say is uh, all of these revivals, if they have one thing in common, and I hesitate to say this, uh, to be honest, because often when revivals uh, are spoken of, uh, I don't like it when the focus is on uh, people. That if we pray, if we fast, if we get our lives right, then revival will come. Now, that's not irrelevant. It does play a part. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That does play a part, but sometimes I think that puts burdens on people's back that are not helpful. What if revival doesn't come? Oh, it's because we didn't do enough. I don't like talk of revival like that. In, In my opinion, revival is a little bit more like a change of season. Uh, To give you an example, I can't do anything to bring about summer. 
But with the temperatures this week, I would love to be able to do that. But uh, if I try really hard, I can't bring about summer. Summer will come when summer is ready. But what I can do is get ready for summer. I can book a holiday. I can go and stock up on suntan lotion. I can go and buy a new pair of shorts. So when summer does come, goodness, I'm ready for it when it happens. I think revival's a bit more like that. Revival will come when revival comes. That's up to God. But what I can do is make sure I'm good and ready for it when it does happen. And so if this talk and this series is about anything, it's about making sure that I and we are ready for whatever God is going to do. A few years ago, I um, was at Ashburnham Place, where we have our annual church retreat. It's coming up again this year on the August bank holiday. Uh, put it in your diaries. We'll share more on that in the coming weeks. We think this year will actually be a significant one because it's our 20-year uh, anniversary. But I was walking through the foyer of Ashburnham Place, and there was an old guy in uh, an armchair uh, who I recognized immediately. Uh, he didn't know me. Um, I'd been on a, a very small retreat. Um, he's led like a very hidden prayer movement, praying for revival. Uh, for most of the last 50 years. Uh, and I sat down with him and I kind of said hi, introduced myself and just thanked him for the part he'd played in my own journey with prayer uh, and with God. Uh, and he asked me what we were doing at Ashburnham. So I told him all about the church and all about you and how amazing you all are. And I don't really know why I said it, but I just threw out one of the things we're really longing for is revival. Kind of praying for God to move in our nation in power. And as I said it, and I'm paraphrasing because the conversation went on for longer than this, he grabbed my arm and said, tell them that it's coming, Andy. Tell them to get ready. Tell them it's going to be greater than anything that they have seen before. Tell them to get ready. Tell them it's coming. Now, I don't know if that is from God. I'm not going to hold God to that. Actually, personally, it is my conviction that it is. I do feel like something is coming. Now, just to say uh, a small thing on that, uh, actually, uh, in the prophetic, sometimes you can sense or perceive what is coming uh, when it actually is a long way off. Jesus would be a great example of this. He looks at Jerusalem and weeps because he sees the destruction that is coming, but actually that destruction comes many, many years, like decades after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Sometimes the prophetic works like that. But actually, it is my conviction that God is up to something. I sense God is on the move. I know many of you do too from my conversations with you. And so just indulge me for a moment. If God is going to move in our community and our city and our nation in power, we want to make sure we're ready for that when it comes. That's what today, that's what the next five weeks are actually all about. And to that end, therefore, I just want to focus on one verse today. It's a really short and easy verse to focus on. It's from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, and it says this, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, I, I know the whole idea of idols and idolatry. It conjures up images of kind of lying prostrate before monuments or statues. The reality is idolatry is actually way more prevalent in our church and in our lives than we might like to admit. I wonder if you've ever met a follower of Jesus. And their life doesn't look very different from before they started following Jesus. That happens to me all the time. I'm just so broken and so aware of my own sin. Chances are the diagnosis is idolatry. That's your experience. If you go through seasons and you feel like, oh, I'm following Jesus, but life feels very much the same, chances are you've got an issue with idolatry. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, a uh, picture of him coming up on the screen, um, he says it's no coincidence that the first commandment is all about idolatry. 
You shall have no other gods before me. He said, you never break any of the other commandments without actually breaking the first one. In other words, whenever you and I sin, the sin beneath the sin is always idolatry. So let's say, for example, I lie. Humble confession, I have lied in my life before. When I lie, what's basically going on is I'm saying approval, covering up my wrongdoings, making myself look better than I really am. That's my savior rather than Jesus. And so I'm looking to that for my salvation rather than God. The sin beneath the sin is idolatry. Or let's say I covet or am greedy. I have done that in my life as well. When I do that, the reality is I'm saying possessions, stuff, success. That's my salvation rather than God. Whenever I sin, always, 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 the sin beneath the sin is idolatry. Something else has grabbed my heart rather than God. And therefore, if revival is coming and I need to get ready for it, the thing I need to deal with more than anything else is idols in my heart. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And therefore, I just want to unpack three steps. How do we individually and corporately deal with idols? It's a Christian talk. They've always got three points. And the first is this. We've got to spot them. The Bible word is we have to discern them. You can't deal with idols unless you know they're there. So what is an idol? Here's what an idol is. It is anything that we look to, to give what only God can give. Uh, 1 John, uh, where we read that verse, earlier John describes it as loving the world. An idol is anything in our life that is so central that we cannot have a meaningful life without it. Pretty much anything in life could be an idol. Uh, really interesting aside in uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the Old Testament, there's this moment when Israel makes a peace treaty with Egypt and Assyria. And God, in talking to Israel, says, hey, when you did that, when you made that peace treaty, you engaged in idolatry. Now, Israel could fairly respond, hang on, we weren't bowing down to statues. We weren't worshipping other gods like all the other nations round about. But the reality is, in doing that, they were giving up money, they were giving up independence. They were taking on political subjugation to get protection from Assyria and Egypt rather than God. When we look to something created to give what only God can give, that's idolatry. Now, I wasn't sure whether to use this quote because it's often used in churches. Almost certainly you've all heard it before in some context. But it's actually one of the best quotes on idolatry uh, around. It's from a guy called David Foster Wallace. Uh, he was not a follower of Jesus, very sadly died in his 40s, but had a really brilliant insight into the human condition. And he said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. You worship money and things, you'll never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid and need ever more power to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here's the interesting thing. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day without ever fully being aware that's what you are doing. In other words, many of us in this room, including myself, could be worshipping idols and not even aware of it. So how do you spot idols? Let me give you three clues. Number one and number two, where does your time and money go? What do you think about most? Follow the trail of your time and your money. Chances are, at the end of it, you will find an idol. Here's the interesting thing about idols. Idols demand sacrifices. You want what I offer, you've got to give me some stuff. What do you do with your time and money? And here's an interesting thing, as an aside, in a community where there's over 200 children and young people. If you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that was sacrificed to get what the idols offered were children. I'm sure we can all bring to mind people even in our city who are chasing money and success and power and pleasure, and it's their children who are paying the price. We have to watch out for that. It's happening all around us every day. Where do your time and money go and then thirdly here's the third clue what do you get most emotional about what agitates you enough chances are beneath that emotion you will find an idol let me give you a really really silly example of this but actually it's more insightful than you might think uh, as most of you are aware I'm the daddy of uh, three children and uh, sometimes my children are badly behaved uh, they have their mother's genes after all what can I say and um, a while ago, I'm walking my two girls uh, to school, and um, they're being really naughty, and all my usual tools are not working, you know, withdrawing privileges, taking away screens, you can't go and see a friend after school, like, all of that isn't working. And I suddenly started thinking, hang on, what are, their, what are their idols? And I began to think, hang on, one of their idols is um, popularity, it's approval, it's acceptance. There's actually some science behind this. Uh, as you and I approach our teenagers, uh, there are chemical changes that happen in our brains that actually stay with us for life that make popularity, acceptance, approval seem like the most urgent thing in all the world. I thought, aha, idol. So I said to my two girls, I said, if you don't behave, daddy will sing and dance at the school gate. Well, they were like, that worked an absolute treat for about two weeks. Um, two weeks later, um, it was just a morning, and quite frankly, my two girls were horrible. I mean, they were just awful. Started with a fight over who sits in the front seat. It just escalated from there. And we're walking through the park towards school, and like, like all the usual tricks aren't working. So I say, right, if you don't behave, Daddy will sing and dance at the school gate. And one of my daughters decided to call my bluff. She said, fine. She said, do it. <laughs> so we're about 50 meters from the school gate. And I'm like, okay, daddy's got to burst into song. So I started off, these are my beautiful princesses. And like seeing their chins drop to the floor was one of the greatest moments of my life. They're like, dad, no. It's like, these are my cutesy wootsy babies. They're like, dad, I'm dying, no. One of them, one of them got on their knees and she said, I'll never be naughty again if you stop. It was amazing. Now, now, here's the point. Well, just as a small aside, as a good dad, I should probably help them deal with their idol rather than use it against them. But I'm a work in progress too, okay? But here's, here's the point. Here's the point. You find an emotional reaction like that, almost certainly beneath it, you will find an idol. What do you get most emotional about? 
Where are you most scared? What gets you really angry? Almost certainly beneath that, there is an idol at work. A couple of examples. Money. Money affects the heart almost more than anything else. We often talk about money. We do it in the notices. Sometimes we will preach on it. It's our conviction that our God is generous. We should be generous too. Uh, we preach on the principle we think is in the Bible called tithing. Now, God's given me everything. First 10% is God's, but of course we're free to go even beyond that. And I want to encourage you to grapple with the scriptures and see what God is saying to you about that. But here's the thing. You hear us talk about money, and the emotional reaction is, I'll do with my money what I want, thank you very much. You won't tell me where to give. Who do they think they are? Telling us it's all about money. You find an emotional reaction like that, chances are there's an idol at work. Something else has grabbed your emotions and affections rather than God. Let me give you another example. Um, I started working for the church just shy of 20 years ago. And when I started working for the church, I had to start preaching. When I started preaching, I was consumed with fear of failure. I dreaded criticism. I dreaded feedback. And hey, idols demand sacrifices. So I poured hours and hours and hours. I way over-prepared because actually what I wanted was approval from others rather than God. It wasn't all bad. I took it seriously. I wanted to do a good job. But something else had my heart. I wanted approval from others rather than God. I had to deal with that. What about you? Where do you need control? Where do you get scared? What makes you feel most uncomfortable? Almost certainly beneath that emotion, there is an idol. How do you spot an idol? Where does your time and money go? What's happening in your thought life? Where do you get most uh, emotional? First thing is, we have to spot them. Secondly, we have to expose them. We're not holding on to idols because we know they're bad. So we have to realize, oh, hang on, these things are actually wanting to damage my life. The Bible's really interesting on this. On, on one level, the Bible is really ambivalent about idols. It says, look, they're just stone, they're just wood, they don't have power. But on another level, the Bible says that behind the worship of idols are demonic forces, principalities and powers, and that in worshiping idols, we give power to those forces to invade and to wreak havoc in our lives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is really interesting on this. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, <clears throat> and he says this, do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. Idols have no power. However, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. When we engage in idolatry, we are giving power to forces to wreak huge havoc in our lives. If you read through the scriptures, idols basically do three things. Number one, they lie to us. Zechariah 10 is just one of the many verses, idols speak deceit. Idols will tell us stuff that's not true. Hey, follow me, worship me, give your time and energy and money to me, and I'll give you what you really long for in here. It's not true. Secondly, they want to enslave us. Galatians talks about this. We end up needing more and more. You chase money, <clears throat> you'll need more and more and more. <clears throat> in fact, interestingly, sometimes the demonic forces behind idols are actually given names. The money uh, force is given a name, mammon. Mammon wants to enslave us. And then thirdly, idols want to kill us. Corinthians 10, again, is really interesting on this. It says, look at the people of God in the Old Testament who fell into idolatry and lost their lives. They are there as a warning to us. Idols want to destroy us. 
idols want to ruin our lives. Let me give you a silly illustration. I want you to imagine that you are in a dark cave. You can't see anything. You can't move. You're stuck. You're trapped. And all you've got is a nice, snuggly, wuggly teddy bear for comfort. And you're kind of nuzzling this teddy. Imagine I come into that room and switch on the light. You can see. You're free to move. You can escape. And you look down, and you realize that what you were snuggling, what you thought was a cute teddy bear, is actually a giant, hairy tarantula. What's your reaction in that moment? Clearly, Daniel, he's going to freak out like me, like, ah! That is a picture of our spiritual state when we come to God. That's why Paul's preaching was so effective. That's why you read the scriptures, people come to Christ, and their lives and society is totally changed because he goes after the idols. And they realize, ah, this stuff that I've been chasing is after my life. I've got to get rid. I've got to throw it off. And the tragedy of the Western church in particular, is that many of us are still hugging the spider. And we think, yeah, I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I might even give some of my money. Like Maybe I'll serve on a serving team, but there's other stuff that's got my heart. Stuff that wants to ruin my life. Let me give you one example of this. It's one of many. Uh, this is from David Foster Wallace again. 1996, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest. And the premise of the book is basically this. If there was a movie that was so good, so amazing, so compelling, but you knew watching the movie would ruin your life, would you watch it? In the story, um, there's this um, movie called Infinite Jest. And it's just utterly compelling. It's addictive. It captivates hearts and eyes like nothing else. Once you've watched the movie, you just want to do it again and again and again and again until your life collapses into meaninglessness. One of the quotes from the book is, you are possessed of roughly the mental or spiritual energies of a moth. If we knew a movie was that good, but we also knew that's what it did to our lives, would we watch it? David Foster Wallace's answer was basically this, we already are. It is happening already. And he wrote the book as a parody of our modern day relationship with screens and the media. He's a Christian author and journalist called Tony Reinker. I like his work. And he says this, the problem is not that TV is innately evil, but the TV is endlessly good at giving us exactly what we want whenever we want it. David Foster Wallace peered into profound spiritual tensions in the media age. Feeding on sinful media will annul our holy affections, yes. But pampering ourselves with a glut of morally neutral media also pillages our affectional zeal. Each of us must learn to preserve higher pleasures by revolting against lesser indulgences. Let me say that again with shorter words that I can understand. What basically he's saying is this, there is some stuff in the media that's bad for us. Like, obvious one would be pornography. If I engage with pornography, it harms myself, my relationships, not to mention the victims who are being exploited on the screen. There's bad stuff out there, we have to watch out for it. But the real problem with the media is not all the bad stuff, it's that actually it's endlessly good at giving me exactly what I want whenever I want it. Like, most of the media is fine. I love TV. I love idly scrolling the internet, but the problem is I can just do more and more and more until it kind of steals me away from what I should be giving my time to. And I get to the end of my life, having given hours of my life to screens, and I look back thinking, what have I done? 
I had a bruising moment last year when one of my daughters said to me, Daddy, you get most grumpy on the weekends when you're watching TV and we interrupt you. And when she said it, firstly, I knew she was right. And I realized one of the things that I was thinking is, hey, this is my time. Me relaxing, me enjoying myself, it mattered more to me than being a good dad and following Jesus. And I had to say sorry to her, and I had to repent before God. And don't look at me with any judgy faces. I know this is you too. I, I, I read a tragic stat. This is just last month. This is Britain. This is the United Kingdom. There's an article that said, on average, on average, the average Brit spends 74% of their waking hours looking at screens. 74% of our time. And it gets worse the younger you get. What are we doing with our lives? See, the deal is most of what I watch is just fine. It's nice. But what happens is that I need more and more. And before I know it, I'm enslaved. And then something else has got my life and my affections and my attention rather than Jesus. Lent is coming, guys. Anyone fancy a media fast? Now, I could do the same with money or power. But here's the issue. All, all I'm trying to do is switch on the light and say many of us, without realizing it, are hugging a tarantula. And if we really want the life change that Jesus offers, it's got to come off. First of all, we have to spot them. Oh, yeah, they're there. Secondly, we have to expose them. They want to ruin my life. And then thirdly, we have to dethrone them. How do you dethrone an idol? The clue is in the first two words. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Dear children. Let's do children first. Firstly, we are children. He's the daddy. He knows best. We have to follow him and submit to him. If he's told us to do something, we should do it. And if he's told us to stop something, we should stop it. Jesus has made it pretty clear what it looks like to follow him. The question is not, oh, what did he mean by that? Mostly it's the question of will I do it or not? Let me give you a, just a silly example of this. Um, when Joy and I first got married... Uh, Joy decided it was high time to learn to drive. And uh, we decided to save some money on driving lessons that I would be her driving instructor. Uh, this did not go well. Um, uh, it started badly when she put the key in the ignition, turned on the engine, and we started bunny hopping down the road. And uh, instinctively, I just started gripping the door for safety. And she looked at me like, what are you doing? What's, what's going on? And it basically just descended from there. The, the really low point was when I screamed, we're going to die. We're all going to die. Um, and we only had one lesson in the end. We just decided paying for driving lessons was a great investment in our marriage. Now, uh, here's the point of the illustration. If we do it right, following Jesus feels like that. Putting Jesus in the driving seat, it feels like that. We're going to die all going to die only here's the point that's the goal jesus is calling me to die to me it hurts like oh i've got to do that with my money i remember when i first started giving like oh it hurts you think this is better i'm dying to self but the other side of that you find ah oh, resurrection life that's the call anyone here need to re-put jesus in the driving seat 
we're children, he's the daddy. So often I want to be the grown-up. I know best. I'll do it, thanks. No, 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 Jesus, you know best. And when I put him in the driving seat, oh, it hurts, it's scary, but he takes me to destinations I would ne never get to otherwise. If revival's coming and I need to get ready, right, you're in the driving seat. I'm your child. I will trust in you. But then secondly, we're not just children, we are dear children. The word in Greek is beloved. We are loved. We're loved by God. Here's the real reason to give up idols. We find something altogether better in Jesus. We find the love of God. Jonah 2 says this, those who cling to worthless idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. TV doesn't love me. TV doesn't care about how I'm doing in life. Money has no investment in my future. Success doesn't care about me. Jesus does. And if we really want to find the power to give up idols, we've just got to encounter the love of God. Augustine discovered this. Augustine had a massive problem with lust. He writes about it really openly. He said, I conquered it through discovering the love of God. Brennan Manning is another example. I read a book by him last year. There's a picture of him coming up on the screen. Um, he was a really broken man. He was an addict, uh, alcoholic. Uh, his marriage broke up. I mean, he was a real mess. And then he encountered Jesus. And for him, he says, it wasn't a set of beliefs. He's like, the love of God changed my life. He said, the Christian faith, it's a love affair for me. And I can lay down all the idols because I've just found something altogether better. Have I tasted the love of God like that? He had a real ministry in leading people into the love of God. He tells a story about ministering to a nun. And part of her story was she'd been abused as a child and hadn't known how to handle that and process that. And she'd carried the trauma and the guilt and the shame and the anger. And like she'd left her life trying to follow Jesus. And she just like, couldn't find the love he talked about. So he sat her in a room. He said, I want you to open your hands. He said, I want you to pray this over and over. Daddy, I'm yours. My daddy loves me. Daddy, I'm yours. My daddy loves me. And she started. It was really awkward and clunky. He said, after half an hour, the love of God broke in. What she was saying went from here to here. And a letter she wrote is in the book, and she said this, I have discovered more peace in the last few days than I have known for the last 78 years of my life. She's a nun. She's doing the stuff every day, and she's missing out on tasting the glorious love of God. Do you know how much you're loved? Jesus is crazy about you. And if we're to get ready for whatever God is going to do, I want to invite you into that. He just loves you so much. He wants to overwhelm you with his love. How do we deal with idols? Number one, we've got to realize, oh, they're there. Number two, we've got to expose them. It's a tarantula. Get rid. Like, it's lying, wants to enslave, wants to kill me. And then thirdly, we need to dethrone them. Okay, I repent. I'm not doing this, I need to start. I am doing this, it needs to stop. But I want to receive your love. Which fuels me to do it. <clears throat> Maybe the band want to come up and I finish with this. <clears throat> and I feel like maybe this is just a really simple prophetic word for our community. Um, I was watching The Chosen uh, last term. It's a, a TV adaptation of the life of Jesus. I was really skeptical when I started watching it, but actually I really like it. Um, and I was just really, um, I really connected with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, maybe because um, we've built the values of our community on that uh, uh, event. And you can listen to that talk uh, on the website. And there was a little detail I just never computed before. 
that those who got the miracle, like thousands fed, were those who stayed listening to Jesus while still hungry. If you read it, they've been there for ages. And they're starving, but they're like, no, I want to listen to this guy. And I started putting myself in the story. And I began to realize that if that had been me, if I'd been there, I'd be like, well, this guy's a good speaker. But I'll get it from other people. I'm hungry. Let's go get some chips. And I began to think, how often do I do that with my spiritual life? Do I really want God more than anything else? And I'm focused on him. Or actually, am I trying to fill my desires with other things? If Jesus is going to come and feed thousands, bread from heaven, am I saying, you know, I'm hungry, but I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for what you're going to do. Or am I fulfilling my desires with other things? Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Can I invite us to stand? And we're going to have a bit longer to worship now. And um, I want to encourage you to use this time of worship as an opportunity to kind of do business with Jesus in your heart. You might want to lift your hands as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. You might want to kneel. You might feel like you want to confess. Jesus, here's some stuff I need to draw a line in the sand and say no more. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come right now. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you into this time right now. I want to ask for anyone in this room who's never tasted the love of God before, would you break into their life right now? May the Christian faith not be a set of beliefs. May it be a love affair. Because Jesus has won our hearts. Come Holy Spirit. And I pray that this would be a moment where personally and corporately we do business with Jesus. Jesus, if you're coming, if there's a change of season, if summer is on the way, may we be ready. We do not want to miss it. We don't want to miss what you're doing. We don't want to miss out on what you have. Jesus, we long for you to come. We hear stories in the past. Do it again. We are waiting. We are longing. We don't want to be satisfied with other things. We want you. We want everything that you've got and more. Where we need to, we repent. We want to pursue you in our hearts again. Come, Spirit of God. We invite you to meet us in this moment now. In Jesus' name.